Welcome to CCA on the Air podcast. My name is Misi Fairfax, and I'm a strategy director here at Complete College America. Now, today on CCA on the Air, we are again speaking with Dr. Ray Lundy, a licensed clinical psychologist and current AVP of Student Health Counseling and Wellness at Wiley College. Now, in part two of this three-part series, we're exploring how leaders and campus, in turn, can adopt and package mental health support in ways that serve the students in their care zeroing in on the diverse and inclusive ways that mental health supports should be delivered to improve a student's ability to learn, function, relate, and thrive. Dr. Lundy, great to have you with us again. Glad to be here and excited about today's conversation. Well, thrilled to have you. And just to give a a quick recap, um, Dr. Lundy, for those who haven't and didn't listen to our previous podcast, we talked about the creation of a holistic model of care that should embody proactive supports and education in and out of the classroom and across campus. Mm -hmm. Though I'm sure for many folks, right, there's a larger question that remains about how do we, right, and you can put anyone's name there, right, campus leadership, faculty, staff, et cetera, frontline staff, right, ensure that we are connecting the students who need the support, which unfortunately the latest data tells us that half of our college students and probably even higher, we know higher across race, income, documentation, status, ability, et cetera, um, in terms of their ability and the availability of resources. So how do we make sure that we are connecting students um, who need the support the most? Um, thank you for that question. And I think it's really simple. Uh, I believe that the first part is that we're not using data in the way that we are meant to use it. Um, I can speak for myself and say sometimes the idea of being data-driven sounds good, but for some folks who are not quantitatively minded, it may feel scary. What I can say is our institutional research partners are just that. They are our partners. They are gathering um, really important information about our institutions that tell us about the profile of our students. If we can understand the profile of our students, it gives us some segue or um, insight into what their potential needs may be. So we look at our institutional research um, data um, at each of our institutions, and then we go back to the research and what it says. And so to ground that a little bit and to give us some more particulars, if you think about campuses that have large populations of adult learners, we know that our adult learners uh, are going to have additional stressors when it comes to academic success in terms of time, uh, in terms of access to wraparound support services. So as a way of mitigating their mental health concerns, we need to make sure that they're provided um, with access to care at, at what we might consider non-traditional hours. Right. Mm -hmm. So many of our counseling centers close right at five. But if you know the demographic of your campus population, we as administrators, faculty and staff need to adjust to meet those student needs. Another example might be um, our LGBTQIA plus students. That particular population of students, we know that the research says they have higher rates of suicide, anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, and they are often just as much, if not more, um, they're underutilizing the services and and they don't often have services that are specific and um, competent to their specific needs, whether it's health 
or mental health. So if we know that that population of folks tends to have greater distress, um, I try not to use the language that they're at greater risk. They are, but what, you know, we don't want to isolate or single them out, but we know that they have greater distress. If there's greater distress, it's, um, it is our responsibility to then think about um, not just in the counseling center, having someone who's competent there, but also what about our faculty and staff outside um, um, in other areas of the institution that can provide resources and create a safer place that's more belonging. Um, if we can do the work of making sure we have resource centers that are in place, you know, if I look at our HBCUs, many of our HBCUs are still trying to catch up in terms of LGBTQIA plus students. That's so right. having those resources is not just about like having a resource center. It also, it mitigates some of the negative impact that stress can have on those students um, and subsequently reducing um, the likelihood of mental health challenges. To bring it on home, when we can look at our dem demographic information and understand our population, then we are better able to do, as we talked in our first podcast, um, those proactive um, educational awareness. We're better able to do what I suggested in our first podcast. We can't be proactive though. We're not looking at the data and we're not getting to know the students that are on our campus. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, it brings me up to a word that has increasingly been thrown out. So when you talk about moving beyond the, the counseling or the resource center, right, I think a word that has gotten out from beyond the resource center has been about trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. Could you talk to us about a little bit more about that, what that means, why there's importance around that, and how that just ties into delivery or the just the appropriate level of care. Cause I think that's the other part about it too, mm -hmm. right? To make sure that, that when they show up, they can get the care that they need. Yeah. I think to start out, say that many of our students are um, arriving to campus having experienced trauma. Okay. What is trauma? Probably important for us to all get on the same page about that. Um, the American Psychological Association defines trauma as an, um, an emotional response to a terrible event um, like an accident, a rape, or a natural disaster. But what I really like to talk to folks about when we're defining trauma is that really it's any event for which you experience an intense amount of um, fear that maybe is conscious or unconscious that removed your experience of safety or ability to control the things around you. So if we think about COVID-19, the global pandemic, that was collective trauma for everyone. But if we think about um, our BIPOC um, uh, student population, there's a whole litany of historical trauma that those groups have experienced that they're also bringing as they, they come onto campus. So trauma... Um, is this kind of really global experience that many of our students are, are presenting with. And trauma-informed care then means that we recognize that our students are coming with this history of concerns. It behooves us as we provide trauma-informed care to consider um, what um, SAMHSA defines as the six principles of trauma-informed uh, uh, approaches. And so it looks at our ability to um, regain trust, um, create safety. It looks at our ability to make sure that the policies that we're putting into place um, are all considering, um, again, this history of difficult um, 
experiences that are challenging the safety, both psychological and physical safety of our students. And um, a trauma-informed approach um, for any uh, population says that we do the work beforehand, going back to our theme of being proactive. We do the work beforehand of understanding um, the potential needs of the folks we're serving. And in doing that, when they come to us, if they feel safe enough to come to us, and I think we're going to get to that, but if they have felt safe enough to come to us, then we're going to respond in a way that uh, understands that they may be experiencing certain um, fear or hypervigilance. So hypervigilance looks like um, if we take um, a black or brown student who comes to the counseling center, or let's take the health center, Many of our Black students might have an understanding of the history of the Tuskegee experiment, um, and they might recognize that the healthcare system may or may not have always considered uh, been considered a safe place. Having that knowledge means I'm going to approach um, a situation with a student that may um, present with some level of fear around health safety. I'm going to recognize that it. I'm going to say something like, um, I might say something like. Um, I recognize that, you know, coming to talk to somebody that you don't know um, and hasn't earned your trust, that that might be a difficult thing. So I'm going to approach that conversation mm -hmm. already recognizing that there may be something there, not assuming, but recognizing that it could be and create the space for someone to say, oh, no, no, um, you know, I feel safe here. Or no, let's talk in partnership about what we can do to make this a safer environment. So the trauma, is, to your point, it's, it's out there, but we, we know um we know some of the traumatic experiences that have happened to our students and it's our, it behooves us to make sure that then we have that in mind, we recognize that and we approach our experiences with them with a level of sensitivity and care that gives them permission to, to show up and be vulnerable. Um, vulnerability is a major part of our ability to receive from therapy or mental health care. And if a student doesn't feel psychologically safe enough to be vulnerable, then they can't get all the support they need. So that trauma-informed approach allows that level of vulnerability that's needed for um, the support uh, to take uh, place in the way we want it to. And the just to add, as I was, I was listening to you, Dr. Lundy, what came to mind is, you know, prior to the pandemic, but I think there's still some lingering frustration of folks who say, listen, well, we have these services, but folks aren't coming students, others aren't utilizing them, they're not coming to see us. And it really speaks to what you said about collective trauma. And then even for racialized, uh, minoritized racialized students in terms of feeling safe to come um, to actually have those conversations and to approach those offices. Um, you mentioned SAMHSA. And so for folks who may or may not be familiar with that, that is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And to kind of dot this even further for folks, you know, SAMHSA has said that the by the age of 16, two thirds of children have experienced trauma individually or collectively, right? So just to to emphasize what Dr. Uh, Lundy has said. And so now, as we know that we're enrolling more and more individuals um, who trauma is a part of their background, it goes to your question. Um, and I want to go back to how do we ensure psychological safety for students to reach out and to get that help? Uh, because that seems like a far leave to go from in terms of folks who have half trauma and then to say and to feel as if it's safe for them to do so or to even mm -hmm. disclose that. Yeah. Oh, so much came up for me as you're asking that mm -hmm. question, because 
I'm aware that there is, my first response is we actually have to be aware that we can't ensure psychological safety. I know it's probably not how folks wanted me to answer that question, but the truth is we can't ensure safety. What we can ensure though, is that we can try to create spaces that um, allow folks the permission to be brave. So we, this idea of safe versus brave spaces, um, um, but although we can't ensure it, we create safety or we create an environment that allows students to be brave. Um, I think it, it's important to know that it is possible um, to create these brave spaces that allows uh, folks to be vulnerable. The other thing that came up for me, though, when you were talking, um, and I, it'll go back to our first question of what resources we have to um, make sure we're serving the, the students, it made me think about um, adverse childhood experiences. So ACEs are concepts that um, give us, as clinicians, indicators. Um, when we, when a mental health therapist first is working with a student, it may be important for those counselors to look at the ACEs score for the student. Um, And in looking at the ACEs score, we can see where there are potential points of trauma. So ACE adverse childhood experiences are the things um, such as food insecurity, um, moments uh, where they've had experience of unwanted sexual or physical contact. So we look at a person's um, experience of these, a score is given, um, and then someone's likelihood of developing a trauma response can be determined using that ACEs score. With that knowledge, then we can approach um, a conversation with them or the support we're providing with for them. We can use that um, to uh, inform trauma-informed, we can use that to inform our conversations with them. We can, as administrators, then use that to inform the programming that we create. We think about student affairs practitioners. Um, and, and as executive leaders, um, when we can understand, get, I, I talked in our first podcast about uh, working collaboratively. So if executive leaders asking for reports at the end of the semester can say, hey, can you give us um, the percentage of our students with higher ACE scores? That lets us know then, okay, we have students who are at greater risk who are going to need this trauma-informed care. You get that percentage and then you use that as a way of guiding the um, the work that we're doing, the policies that we're developing. Um, and I think um, so th- those are the two things came up that came up for me. But as far as the grounding this idea of c- creating psychological safety for students when they reach out, an ethic of care is where we lead. When mm-hmm. a student knows that you care about them, um, they are most likely to feel less um, of the fear associated with being vulnerable, which is what I said is necessary for them to receive the support they need. So leading with that ethic of care. Also thinking about how um, you are modeling vulnerability um, yourself. Um, so if we put ourselves into what it takes to show up and, and expose yourself, it almost you know kind of this idea of like opening up and saying something is wrong, that stigma associated with that leaves us feeling really vulnerable and raw. And a way for us to create psychological safety is to not just expect the students to do that, but for us to also be willing to do that as well. So 
um, administrators, faculty and staff who actually take their mental health day, mental health day. Like I wasn't here, I took a mental health day, but not being ashamed to talk about it or not trivializing that because, um, you know, talking about it in a way that like, this is something that's necessary for me to do gives other people the permission to do that as well. So you want to, when you're creating those brave, brave spaces where we hope that people feel safe, um, it's important that we model the vulnerability. We understand what the, what, what, you know, using things like the ACE score, we understand what potential challenges might be forthcoming. Um, and then um, we listen is the last thing I might suggest. We listen. So we understand, we model, and we listen. When we listen, um, sometimes, you know, okay, I'll give you this example. When someone asks, how's your day? What do we normally say? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine, right? <laughs> or if somebody takes the risk and they feel psychologically safe enough to say how they're actually doing, do you listen? Do we take the time to pause and really hear what the person is saying? More often than not, we keep moving on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. That would be a moment where if someone took the risk to be, to be they felt psychologically safe enough to share and you didn't actively listen, that would be a moment where we did not promote psychological safety or being brave um, and we would have shut that communication down. So I would say the tangible three things for mm -hmm. folks in, in ensuring psychological safety um, is to make sure you understand what folks are coming with, modeling the, the vulnerability that we want our students, our folks to share, mm -hmm. and then listening if folks really do um, take the risk to be brave and tell us what they need. Yeah. It, you know, when you said that, it, it brought to mind, and I don't know, folks, depending on what part of the country commercials get shared, but there was a, a commercial where someone shares, um, I mean, it came to mind where someone shares, oh, how are you doing? And in the commercial, the individual goes, well, my son is dealing with um, uh, substance abuse, blah, blah, blah. And you see the individual who just shuts down and doesn't know what to say. And it, mm -hmm. it seems as if that's still a little bit of where we are in terms of equipped, equipping um, faculty, staff, others in terms of what to do or how to do that, though I know there's been many gains that have been made. One thing I would mention, though, in, in terms of that psychological safety, if that skill isn't there and, the and you know, you can't really tell if individuals have that skill or if or depending how welcoming they may be or how they may interact with others, I think a lot of students and may take cues from that. But I would say that, you know, to ensure that I think across uh, the pandemic and as folks um, including myself and others, right, have turned to that mental health care. It's been really about how do I get access to to that parts of my identity that are so critical, the experience that I'm having, right? So across race, gender, and, and many others for for um, many folks. What does that look like? Have we improved in that and the ability to access that? And if we haven't, do you have some suggestions or ideas and and ways to improve in that area? Yeah. So. I love that question. Essentially, it's a question about, um, I've talked about psychological safety and now we're getting into like, what are going to be the barriers to that? What are going to be the barriers to creating that? And your question about have we improved? So the barriers are often things like accessibility, um, having, having providers or care that's competent from people who look like me and, um, 
back to that ethic of care feeling like people really get a sense that you really do want to su support me when that when that isn't there it doesn't matter your race gender orientation um when 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 people don't feel like you're genuinely interested that is going to be a barrier i think to answer the question about have we improved unfortunately there are still if we want if we want to say um folks um, feel that the folks are genuinely being cared about. I think improvement there has happened. Folks are genuinely concerned um, that our students and that we're more even inter introducing the idea, are our faculty and staff okay? I don't know if we've done the work there, but yeah, we're genuinely concerned. So that could be an area of improvement. But what hasn't improved is our ability to do things like hire more diverse mental health practitioners. Um, many of our students, um, this idea of having a provider that looks like me. And looks like me could mean race, looks like me could be orientation. Um, you know, there's still lots of work to, to do there. There is a shortage um, of uh, BIPOC mental health practitioners, even uh, on or off campus. And so many of our students approaching a counseling center or, or deciding not to may feel like, well, they're not gonna speak my language. Right. When we think about culture, cultural barriers, um, mm -hmm. language is such a, a connecting point. And we're not just talking about does someone speak English or not. There are all these cultural nuances um, within these various um, um, subgroups. And so um, there's more work to be done there. So folks are caring more. We got to turn that care into our hiring practices um, and, and our ability to create belonging for the folks that we're hiring. And then I would say the last piece um, is we want to reduce the barrier of access. And I think the pandemic, um, and I hope we'll get into that a little bit more, but I think the pandemic provided us with some insight around how we can improve access um, as a barrier in to providing mental health care. But those would be the three that I would say. We got to care more and we're doing it. We got to hire people that look like the folks that we're serving and whatever way that means. Um, and we got work to do there. And we got to make sure that the folks, it's, it's, it's accessible. We can say, well, the counseling center is available, but back to my example about adult learners, well, it's not accessible to them if you close at five. That's so, right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And basically at that point, we're saying, hmm, eh, maybe not so important, right? What message is yes. that sending to that student? Yeah, um, it sends a, a conflicting message um, that, you know, again, we're, we're everybody's all caring more and talking about it. But if you don't change your policies, if you don't change um, the ways in which you introduce this information, um, if you don't start providing um, um you know, the information in multiple languages to address the fact that that not everybody is English as a first language. If you don't start making sure that you're inclusive of like, you know, in places that have religious diversity, that we also mm -hmm. understand that mental health care looks different, that we got to be doing the actual work of diversity, equity, inclusion and justice, which so often is walking hand in hand with this mental health care. But we we've got to do the work of merging those fields a little bit better. Absolutely. And it, it feels like in many ways too, we're still at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're doing to support and actually move forward equity. Cause you know, in many circles, folks talk about what does that mean? And there's lots of intersectionalities across, mm -hmm. um, across, um, across our students. So if we're not doing something that's about accessibility of gender, 
race, et cetera, it compounds across that student. And so you you were leaning into, and I, I want to lean into with um, the time that we have to talk about the improvements. There have been some notable uh, mm-hmm. improvements in access and the mm-hmm. move to the virtual space. So in terms of what folks were doing, what's worth keeping, leaving, um, mm-hmm. or improving upon? Yeah, I think the pandemic helped us to um, really shore up our teletherapy services and the use of technology. So I think improvement there around accessibility um, is there's opportunity there. If we can ensure from an equitable space that all of our students have access to technology. So for example, at Wiley, um, I'm saying teletherapy and access using digital tools was important. Um, But one of the things we had to do as an institution during the pandemic is make sure all of our students, which 92 or 3% of us, those students are Pell eligible, we had to make sure they had computers and Wi-Fi. We couldn't say we're going to provide you with the support. Um, And we have, we're going to provide you with that support virtually if we didn't also give you the tool to use it. And so I think it's important for institutions to understand um, that that might be a place to uh, to put resources. So if you're going to use the technology, um, use the technology as an accessibility tool, not only to provide the service, but create um, avenues for students to have access to the technology itself. Um, I think another thing that happened um, inadvertently for mental health providers that, is that we came out of the counseling center. Talked a little bit about that earlier, but like, um, one of the things that traditionally has happened within mental health support has been um, because of the need for confidentiality, we wait for the student just to come in and say they need care. Uh, again, with our approach of going proactive instead of reactive, coming out of the counseling center and recognizing um, things like drop-in hours, um, models, um, at institutions that use uh, a let's talk about it model. So that's a specific specific strategy for anyone who's listening and want to say, well, what do you mean come out of the counseling center? Center. So a let's talk about it model says that you have um, embedded services throughout campus where there are safe or brave spaces for folks to come and process what's going on for them. Um, and then a referral is made for more intensive need for care. Um, so coming out of the counseling center, I think is critically important. I'm and we were forced to do that with the pandemic. So post-pandemic, we hold on to that. Um, and we in, in, embed resources there to make sure that there are enough staff or student volunteers to provide that. Um, and then uh, we make sure that it's given the marketing or the promotional support that it needs so folks know that it exists. And I think the last thing I'll say um, that happened is we all had to work together Um, So collaboration was a good thing. Uh, We had to work together. I was working with uh, my religious life uh, partners to uh, access certain uh, students who may have been in need during the pandemic. So coming back to campus, we continued that collaborative relationship. Also, our students are partners in academic affairs. We've got to bridge this gap between student affairs and academic affairs that, you know, every part of the institution, everybody feels like, well, my role is the most important role. Right. I'm the one doing the if the kid we didn't have this, then the students wouldn't be here. And so, (laughs) okay, we're all working together. Okay, Mm -hmm. Um, so the improved piece here that happened as far as um, access is we came together to provide the resource. We need to continue to do that. Um, And I can't at this moment think of things so much that 
we did that we want to leave because I felt like it's, it's uncomfortable and unfortunate and we do not want to go back to a global pandemic. Um, but it forced us to be innovative. And we know that in times of challenge, that's when innovation emerges. Um, I guess if, if I wanted to leave something, it would be um, the continue to walk away from or move from this idea and this fear of trying new things, trying different things. Um, continue. I want us to continue to no longer be bound by this is the way we've always done it. And I think... Uh, that's a deficit to institutions. And what I have seen is some institutions try to go back to the way they did it pre-COVID, um, which I think is doing folks a disservice. So I would say, um, hold on to the use of technology coming out of the counseling center and our ability to collaborate really, really effectively and try not to go back to like the status, the status quo of what we were doing pre-COVID. And that makes a, a lot of sense. And uh, one of the things I want to bring up, because I thought it was a very interesting article that was in the New York Times, because um, it talks about, you, we talk about just a little bit about what happens uh, on campus, but what also happens in society um, and the moments when we have to actually talk about them. And so one of the things that actually was shared is that um, knowing and thinking about the social spaces and where we share the social spaces with our students to support their mental health, um, I know in conversations that you and I had, we talked about how some um, campuses are going into these TikToks and putting videos and other things to engage with them across mental health and wellness. Yes, and, yes. And I think those are wonderful things because I think it really has to combat a lot of the messages that are on social media overall. And mm -hmm. I say this just to get your reaction to it, because I think this is something that's going to be continually problematic. Yes. Um, specifically with what's happening with Twitter, there has been, and the Center for Countering Digital Hate and others have talked about the the rise in um, slurs against Black Americans, against gay men, anti-Semitic posts. Um, so when we're looking at this environment and we're seeing an uptick of some of these, these things are coming up that cause harm and collective trauma to our communities. What are some of the considerations that uh, campuses should be making when they're selecting technology in this space Mm -hmm. to, again, a lot of the things that we talked about, right? Whether it's representation, maybe it's access, it's, it's conversation pieces. But I just want, mm -hmm. I brought that up just to get your reflection mm -hmm. about how technology can harm, but then also mm -hmm. help mm -hmm. our students. And I, I think mm -hmm. in the mental health space that can, that can occur as well, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah. The help we see as I mentioned in the last question, is it can be such an accessible tool and it meets people where they are. Um, and you talk about TikTok and Instagram, even being able to use those as ways to have kind of informal um, mental health conversations. But the hurt, to your point, um, can be, is the hurt or the damage that can happen can be psychologically damaging and then it pulls us back. One thing that I want to make sure folks know is that, um, um, partnering, collaborating, as I stated in that earlier question, with our information technology um, um, peers, um, IT, our IT um, department's chief information officers, they're going to have some insight around how we use um, tools that are encrypted they're going to help guide us in making sure, uh, and I'm thinking that, you know, those are institutional tools. When we're talking about social media, 
Um, that's a different story, but let's talk about the institutional tools. If we're using institutional tools um, for communication across campus or providing that access that I talked about, it needs to be encrypted and we need to pull in our experts on campus who understand how technology should be used. So I'm not gonna profess to be a technology guru, but what I will do, um, if I think about my, my colleague at Wiley College, I'm gonna talk to our chief information officer um, as I'm trying to uh, integrate this new software uh, to use with students to help them access mental health support. Um, and, and so, yeah, technology, great tool, but we want to make sure we're embedding those safety uh, procedures as it relates to social media. Um, you know, I think folks, there's not a fancy answer here. I think folks, you know, Twitter, and other social media platforms, they have uh, regulations and guidelines around, you know, speech and what's appropriate and what's not. But as we can see, there are some changes that are happening in certain platforms that I think from a very personal agency perspective, uh, we want to encourage individuals who, those who might be listening. And as you go and talk to your students, we want to encourage folks to, uh, to treat yourself with that same trauma-informed care that I was talking about. So if you know that you have a history of being triggered by certain experiences on social media, I want to encourage folks to take ownership and like, we need to log off. There are actually mm -hmm. um, seven forms of rest that we need in order to stay balanced. One of those forms of rest is resting from um, um, stimulation. Okay, so when we think about rest, we tend to just think about getting sleep, but actually things like resting from stimulation inclusive of social media, I want to encourage us to begin to take some ownership there um, and give folks permission to say, let's log off or let's not use Twitter so much until, until this gets figured out. Um, so I know that's not a solution, but it, it is an, it's consideration for folks and that sometimes we maybe feel um, like we can't, even if we think about faculty and staff, well, maybe, you know, I'm giving information or access to, to, to students in a way um, on my Twitter feed. Twitter for some folks is like really important. Um, I have a colleague, a, psych, a psychology professor who I saw, she, she said goodbye to Twitter and she encouraged her students and anyone who's following her for information to follow her over on Instagram. So we have to give ourselves permission. Like my last question, when I answered, um, stated like if we've got to, we've got to give ourselves to be making sure we're always ready to pivot if necessary. And so there's certain tools that we've used that we had access to that may not be safe anymore. And if it's not safe, we don't stay in safe and in, in unsafe places. I'm encouraging us not to do that. Um, and I think as institutions, we can model that if Twitter is your normal way of communicating information out to students, you again, you may need to consider um, how you're gonna to, to shift. So we gotta be ready for that pivot because if it's no longer safe, um, we don't need to stay in those spaces. Absolutely. Um, well said. And so I would say from here, right, I think it's one of those of where do we go from here? Um, and so I'll leave this as our last question in terms of, what you have, um, you've said many things for us. So I just, I want to leave it open-ended in terms of uh, what are some thoughts you have for us? And then if, um, and just additional thoughts you may have in terms of what's next coming in this series, this webinar series. Yeah. Um, so we've come from a place of talking about mental health care is extremely important and is, um, it is, can be maximized in terms of potential by being proactive. 
That was our previous conversation. Today, we were looking at the barriers to, even if we are proactive, how are folks are going to access that care? And so where I want to say going from here, we are going to move forward creating psychological safety. We're going to have trauma-informed care in the forefront of our minds um, so that then students come in and they feel safe. And then we're going to utilize technology in a way um, that can help reduce the barrier to access, but we're going to make sure we do that um, using um, tools um, that are encrypted or that are recognize the safety, the privacy of the folks that we're supporting. Um, and I think that in doing um, all of those things, we would have we we can move into what our last podcast is going to talk about. We can move into then making sure. Um, that the folks who are closest to the students sometimes, when we think about our faculty um, and even our staff, we're going to move into doing all those things in terms of psychological safety, being proactive. We're going to make sure that the people who are providing the care, that they also have some level of training and understanding about their own needs. And so I think that's where we go from here is the discussion of, okay, we address these barriers and barriers can look like access, barriers can look like our own previous experience. We're going to we're going to um, address that institutionally, but on the individual level, we're going to make sure that the people who, if we're saying, we we've told folks what to do um, in these last two episodes, now we're going to tell you a little bit deeper of how to do that. Um, and so I'm excited for our, our, our final conversation because it will say, you know, with all the things in mind that we've had for students, what do I do for myself as a way of being prepared to support them and prepared to support myself um, as we're working to be more proactive with this mental health support? That's wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Lundy. And then I also want to thank so much again, you for sharing your expertise with us. And thank you for the listeners who are joining us as well. Please stay tuned for, as you mentioned, our final podcast series of this mental health series, and then also stay tuned uh, for more episodes of CCA on the air.